Welcome back, Intimates. Thanks for your support on Patreon, making this 2021 season possible. This podcast is about all things intimate, relationships, love, connection, community, consensual non-monogamy, kink, orgies, lovers, and of course, good old-fashioned sex. I talk with old friends and even meet some new ones. I interview people from all walks of life, from recovered addicts to counselors, sex partners to perfect strangers. I'd like to thank my hosts, the Musqueam First Nation, as this podcast is recorded on their unceded ancestral territory, where I was born, where I work, and where I currently live and play. So settle in for an intimate conversation. Lisa Tamati is many things. She's Maori from Aotearoa, or as settlers call it, New Zealand. And the Maori have this word iwi for band or tribe, meaning bone. It signifies a lineage and ancestral connection, but the metaphor for me conjures this image of strength and resilience, flexibility to bend without breaking. I still see that strength and resilience today in communities continuing to survive colonialism and those who somehow, like Lisa, find ways to thrive. Lisa is both from the Te Ati Awa Iwi and from the Ngati Raukawa Iwi. Apologies for any mispronunciations. For settlers, one might just say around Wellington, but it really doesn't mean the same thing. She's also the first woman from New Zealand to do a lot of things. If I listed all of them here, I have a feeling the podcast would be over before the intro had even finished. Instead, I'll just say she's an incredible ultramarathoner author who brought her mom, who she describes heartwarmingly as the very best mom, back from the verge of death with an intense amount of grit and some help from a hyperbaric oxygen therapy chamber. If you want more about that after the podcast, you can always pick up her book, Relentless, in which she imparts her mindset as an extreme endurance athlete and the wisdom such a life can bring. Go to lisatamati.com, that's L-I-S-A-T-A-M-A-T-I, and find it there. You can also check out her podcast, Pushing the Limits, where she documents running techniques and interviews experts on elite athletic strategies. She also does coaching and corporate speaking arrangements on her website. But without further ado, let's go to our first session with Lisa Tamati here on Intimate Interactions. Welcome everyone to another session of Intimate Interactions. I'm sitting here very fortunately with Lisa Tamati, the ultra marathon runner from New Zealand who's completed, Lisa, how many is it now? More than 140 ultra marathons? 140 odd, yeah. <laughs> That's incredible. Um, and in addition to that, you've now released this new book, Relentless, and you describe the story of bringing your mom back from seemingly the verge of death with this really intense aneurysm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, yeah. Tell us, tell us a little more about that. Yeah, so thanks very much, Victor, for having me on the show. It's really it's an honour and a privilege. Um, yeah, so for, uh, just to give people a little bit of background, so five and a half years ago, my mum, who's sort of been the you know rock of my world, most amazing mummy, um, had a massive aneurysm. <laughs> was left, you know, with she was left with like massive brain damage. Like the the we had a, a sort of medical misadventure from the get go where they misdiagnosed her. They thought she was having a migraine, um, oh, and so. Wow. They ignored us for six hours while she was actually dying, you know, had blood going right throughout her brain at this time and was in extreme pain. And I, I, at that point in the emergency department, I didn't know what to ask for. I didn't know anything about anything, right? I'm just, uh, you know, a loved one going, what's going on? Um, wow. And sort of 
just put my faith in the, the the doctors and so on that they knew what they were doing and they just said oh she's having a migraine and left her there um the ambulance driver who'd driven her up to the hospital had said i think she's having a stroke or an aneurysm so he he was actually more on the ball than the doctor um but the doctor just said nah it's just a migraine so left us there for hours waiting for the painkillers to to kick in after about four hours i was like desperate because i knew this wasn't a, a migraine i'd seen her with mm-hmm. migraines before and this was definitely very very different and and she was in extreme pain. So I actually rang a friend of mine who was a paramedic and she had crewed for me in a lot of my races all around the world. And she knew my mum very well. And she took one look at her and said, oh my God, she's having a stroke or an aneurysm as well. So she went to the doctor and sort of told him in no uncertain terms to get her a CT scan right now. And eventually after six hours, he he relented. Um, we got the CT scan and it came back blood right throughout her brain. And then they started to, you know, move. <laughs> and um, they, yeah. we, we live in a little regional town. And so we had no neurological unit where, where I was. So we had to get her back down to Wellington, which is our capital city, city and get her into uh, surgery there if she was going to have a chance to survive. And at this point, they didn't think she would survive. Um, there was blood right throughout the brain, which is, you know, a disaster for brain mm-hmm. tissue. Um, so then we, so that put me on hyper alert, Victor, because it made me sort of hyper vigilant that, hey, uh, humans are humans, we make mistakes, and I have to take as much control as I possibly can from here on in because I've completely missed the ball at this point. And um, if I'd pushed earlier to get help, I, I might have been able to, you know, save more. Uh, of of the situation and so this made me go like right I've got to study I've got to take control as best I can now we're in a critical situation and in a critical situation where you're reliant on you know ICU staff and and things like that there's not a heck of a lot you can do but you can study so I promised my mum at that point even though she wasn't conscious that you know I would do everything in my power to get her back or die trying that was the attitude that I that I sort of took immediately and so the we got her through to Wellington. She had a, the initial operation where they put a stent in her head and started to drain the blood off her brain. Um, the surgeons did an amazing job. And she was then in a in a very fragile state. So over the next three weeks, she had what they call vasospasms, which is where the blood and brain tissue, when they mix, it can cause spasms in different parts of the brain. And these are like strokes all over the place. And you lose more and more and more of your brain function, basically. She wow. also had to have a, a second operation a couple of days later where they went in up through the femoral artery and put in a little coil in the actual aneurysm that had burst to try to stop any more blood coming out. Is, um, is that like a stent? Uh, the, no, the stent was the original one where they were draining the blood off the brain. Okay. Um, and this was a, a little coil, a platinum coil that gets put into the vessel to try and clog it up for the want of a better description and stop the blood uh, burst, you know, stop it bursting again. When they did this operation, though, they leaned on another um, vessel, blood vessel next to where they were operating and they caused a stroke. So she was now paralyzed on the right hand side as well. And then for the next three weeks, she was in and out of a coma state and she was having these vasospasms and losing more and more of her brain function over that time. And uh, I mean, the the people in the ICU did an absolute amazing job. They helped her to survive this critical stage. And Mm -hmm. in this time, I'm studying like (laughs) no tomorrow. Like I'm just up with everything. I'm hypervigilant. I'm watching everything. Um, not much I can do in that critical phase, but once she stabilized and they took her out of ICU, 
And then she was transported back to our, our local hospital and she was in hospital, but she had massive brain damage. So she was like a baby. She had no um, ability to control any of her bodily functions, no idea who she was, what she was. She had a couple of words that she kept repeating, but that was about it. Um, so she, she didn't know who I was or anything like that. Um, and so in this, you know, dire situation, we're sort of looking to the doctors for guidance on, you know, what do we do now, you know? Um, and the, the rehabilitation was very, you know, they couldn't do very much. And she's in the hospital, she's stabilised now. But then I started to see things in her that I had seen in myself when I had altitude sickness. So I've raced in, you know, doing ultramarathons in the Himalayas and really extremely high altitudes and I'd mm -hmm. had altitude sickness before and I was seeing some of the same symptoms in her that I had and this is a, a when you have a lack of oxygen um, you can get things like your bacteria going proliferating in the body and um, things like this so I was seeing in her and I said to them I want a sleep apnea assessment I don't think she's breathing properly when she's asleep and of course she's sleeping most of the time mm -hmm. um, and they said we don't need that you know, you know why should we do that blah, blah, blah. And I, so I went and got an outside consultant and I smuggled him into the hospital one night and we did a sleep apnea assessment and it came back that she had severe sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. So she was stopping breathing hundreds of times a night. She was chain stoke breathing. So she was on her way out basically. And wow. um, her oxygen saturation levels were down at around 70%, which is deadly. So you don't live very long at that sort of um, mm -hmm. oxygen saturation. So this was a huge win for me and for her because it meant that she was now put on a CPAP machine and which helped you breathe and blows uh, air down your, your throat basically and forces mm -hmm. air down. And um, this meant that she was now getting the oxygen. So she wasn't knocking off what little brain function she had. Um, mm -hmm. So that was my first win. And without that, we, you know, she wouldn't have lived many more weeks. Um, so then I started to think, okay, well, I picked that one up. What else can I do, you know? Um, and then I came across something called hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Now, this is a totally underrated therapy for things like brain injury. Now, they do use it in our uh, Auckland and Christchurch hospitals, two of our main hospitals, but they only use it for things like diabetic wounds and gangrene and uh, mm -hmm. burn victims because it speeds up the, the healing process. But there's huge amounts of clinical data to say it's actually very, very beneficial for brain injury. And so after three months in the hospital, they were saying, right, we have to get her out of the hospital system. She's stable. She's not going to ever have any quality of life again. So we need to put her in an institution. And I just went, no, that's not happening. We're not putting her in an institution. And I fought like crazy. And I said, I want to take her home and I want a little bit of support because they could give us um, an hour of caregivers in the morning and in the evening. That was part of their, their remit that they could do. But they mm -hmm. didn't want to do that because it meant that they, the person stayed, the patient stays within their, their budget. Um, and they wanted to put her in an institution because that's in somebody else's budget, right? Mm -hmm. And I believed that with all my heart that if I had my mum at home, she would feel on some level, she would feel that she's loved, that she's wanted, that she's surrounded by her things, that nobody could care for her like we could care for her. Mm -hmm. And these people in the hospital were like, no, you'll never cope. She's 24-7, round-the-clock care for two people. There's just no way your family will cope. And I remember going into the social worker and taking in my first two books that I wrote about my running adventures and sort of throwing across the table at him and saying, this is who I am and I'm not giving up on my mum. And, I've, mm -hmm. you know, I, I will take on this challenge and I'll, and I'll fight for her. 
and he they eventually relented and um, let me have the the caregiver in the morning and the evening for an hour, and uh, let me take her home. But on the way out of the door, the social worker says to me, you'll be back here begging for my help in two weeks. There's no way in hell you're ever going to cope. And um, I was like, and I'll show you, you know, <laughs> it was a real red, a red, a red rag to a ball. Um, and so I got my mum home and the very first day that I had her home, I'd, I'd managed to research about hyperbaric oxygen therapy. And I'd studied under Dr. Harch in America and all his work, amazing doctor and his books and watched a hundred videos of patients recovering from brain injuries. And so I'd found a commercial dive company of all places that had a hyperbaric chamber because they use this for for things like the beans, uh, when divers get the beans. Um, And so I, I approached, this is not a medical clinic, but I approached these guys and said, this is my situation. This is my research. Can I please use your chamber? And these amazing people said, yes, you sign a legal medical waiver, um, you know, because we're not allowed to do this sort of thing, really, you know, but if you sign a a legal waiver with our lawyers, we'll we'll let you do it. So, of course, I did that. And uh, as soon as I got her out of the hospital, the very same day, I took her straight down into this factory. We stuck her on a forklift and I put her in this hyperbaric chamber. Everyone thought I was completely nuts right but I knew the research and I knew this was my only hope so Mm -hmm. I put it through treatment uh, five treatments a week so we had an hour and a half a day and after 33 treatments over the next you know month or so um, Mm. she started to respond she started to wake up and now it took about 25 sessions for me to see anything but after about 25 she started to respond now she didn't get up and just start walking or anything but she started to have a couple more words she started to use her hands she was trying to communicate I could see that there was a flicker of intelligence behind her eyes and a flicker of recognition of who I was and who her family were and I'm like oh my god this is working so and then the chamber got taken off on a contract and I lost access to it so then I like okay another obstacle what do we do when we get an obstacle we try to find a way around it so Mm -hmm. i went to the bank and i asked for an extension on my mortgage and i mortgaged the house and i bought a hyperbaric chamber and i installed it in our house and it's not easy to do but um i did that and um it took me another you know six weeks or so for it to arrive from china and install it and so on and then i started to put it through session after session and I had a protocol that I'd worked out um, working with Dr. Harch and his, his team over there telling me what to do sort of thing and I put it through at about 40 in, in a block and then we'd have a month off and, a, and another block and, that, and as I did that she started to have a little bit more function and you know we would have weeks when there was nothing but I just kept going because there's one thing I know as an ultra marathon runner is how to fight and how to push through and how to just keep grinding on And as she came back, I started to study everything else that I could to stay one step ahead of her because every time we would learn something, there would be another battle and another thing that I hadn't known about, you know, like she had no vestibular system that was completely gone. So she couldn't even sit without falling over. She didn't know what was upright. She didn't know where her body stopped and started. She didn't Mm. know how to chew food. She didn't know how to, um, you know, just all these basic things that we just don't even think to think about um i had to teach her from scratch and thousands and thousands of hours of of retraining her brain basically from a baby i studied everything from epigenetics and functional genomics to nootropics i had her on a keto diet i had her um learning you know functional neurology so i was studying that which is like helping with the vestibular system so 
everything that I could possibly do to stay one step ahead of her, we did. And we spent thousands and thousands of hours, my family and I, retraining her. And it took me it took me 18 months just to teach her to roll onto her side in bed. You know, like that's how glacially wow. slow things were. Um, and we could get her up and we could get her in a walker and we could pull her along and her, her legs would then start to move, but she wasn't walking on her own volition. To get her back to walking, um, eventually I, I started having her in between parallel bars and starting to work, work towards that. And to cut a very long story short, after two and a half years, I got my mum back to complete full health. So wow. she... Um, she has her full driver's license. She has her full power of attorney. She's the intelligent woman that she always was. She walks four or five Ks a day. She goes to the gym five days a week. She, you know, she goes to art classes. Now she enjoys time with her granddaughter. You know, she just has a full life back. Like you wouldn't know uh, if you met her um, and she's actually out walking in the rain at the moment. So you can't meet her. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> she might pop back in, in a minute. Um, you know, she's got her full life back. Um, and, and this, this, this story, I, I, I needed to write a book about this because I needed to empower other people going through journeys where they're told it's impossible, you can't do it, or if you're given a terminal prognosis or, you know, whatever the case may be, this is, it's, not a, it's not a book about, you know, the how-tos, although there's a lot of the therapies and things that I did in there and the protocols and all of that sort of stuff. But most importantly, it's a book about taking on massive challenges and, and you know, steering down the wolf, as my friend Mark Devine would say, and, mm-hmm. um, and not giving up when, when everything's stacked against you and going all in. If you're committed to something, um, then you have a chance at success. It's not guaranteed that you're going to succeed. I, I could have done all of this and, and gotten nowhere. I realized that. And right. I had a, I had a journey, you know, just last year with my father who actually, um, we lost him a year ago and I, and I did the very same things. I fought with tooth and nail to save his life. He had a, he had an aneurysm in the stomach this time, a different area. Um, and I fought, with everything I had and, and, and I, when we lost him, you know, so I, I know what it is to go all in and to win. And I know what it is to go all in and to lose. But the thing is when you take on massive challenges, you have a chance instead of just, you know, one of the, the issues that I have with the way that a lot of the medical system is set up is that they don't want to give you false hope, which I understand, but sometimes they take mm-hmm. away all hope. Mm-hmm. And they don't. They don't know. Like when a, when a person, a, a doctor, or a medical professional says to you, "Look, there is no, there is no way out. There is nothing we can do." That all that says to me, and especially now because I spent five and a half years studying this area, um, mm-hmm. that just says to me, "No, that person doesn't know the latest research. That person doesn't know everything that the human body can do and the human mind can do. That person mm-hmm. doesn't know you." And how hard are you willing to fight? And then, then it's up to you to go and find people who can tell you the next step and the next way forward. And you would be shocked at how far the the science is ahead of actual clinical practice. And we're talking 20 odd years. So mm-hmm. I, I have a podcast called Pushing the Limits and I interview uh, world-leading experts in, in health science and uh, in biohacking and longevity and anti-aging and all in this, in, this, in this whole area. And without fail, every one of these professors, doctors, scientists say, says to me, 
we are 20 years behind in the actual hospitals and the actual clinical practice than we are than, than the knowledge base of humankind. So that means that you as a person, as a consumer of the, this, this stuff and who wants to look after their health, you have to be proactive and you have to be in that preventative mindset and you have to go and find the best people to work with and find the information. And we, we live in a day and age, Victor, where we're, we have the ability to access the greatest minds on the planet because mm-hmm. their work is on the internet. Now you right. have to be careful. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of rubbish on the internet as well, but there is mm-hmm. PubMed and there are the top professors who have their own podcasts and there are books that are just unbelievable. And that means that you have the power to go and research. If you've got, you know, um, somewhat of an education and you can go and, do that then that's that's a chance for you to find an answer to a specific problem because what you also find is that in general practice the people the doctors have are overworked they have people coming in every 10 minutes there is no way in hell they can really get to the bottom of your issues all they can do is stick a band-aid on a festering wound a lot of the time or give you a pharmaceutical and then you end up with you know polypharmacy um, situations, and that's not to say we don't need drugs. We do, for goodness sake, we do. And what they do with things like broken legs and surgeries is just absolutely amazing. But when it comes to chronic degenerative diseases, when it comes mm-hmm. to autoimmune diseases, when it comes to rehabilitation, there are limitations within the system that we have to be aware of, and therefore take as much proactive control as we can. Mm-hmm. So sorry, I've gone on a little bit. <laughs> no, that's okay. Um, it was It's clearly a, an involved story with a lot of moving pieces, and it really mm. does offer a foundation as to how you transition from being you know, a, a very successful athlete and suddenly retiring if I'm getting the timeline correct. Is that yeah. right? Yes. And then I, focusing... yes. I was forced into retirement at that right. point for obvious reasons. Yeah. And, and way overdue, to be honest, that was probably, I'd spent sort of 25 years pushing my body to the limits. And now because I've studied genetics and epigenetics and, um, I now know that if I want to live a long and healthy life, which is my priority now, I probably mm-hmm. shouldn't be doing back-to-back ultramarathons. You know, <laughs> so <laughs> it was probably a blessing in disguise as well. You know, not that there's anything wrong with doing those things, and we train a lot of people to do those, but sure. uh, we try to keep people on the on the safe side of the equation now. <laughs> of course, um, wonderful. Yeah, no, and if I'm not mistaken, your mum was always the one driving you when you said I want to do this crazy thing she was always the one saying okay go do it yep yeah yeah she was always supportive I mean uh, you you can imagine when your child goes off and does all these dangerous scary you know expeditions (laughs) across Libyan deserts or running across Death Valley in the middle of summer or you know like crazy stuff where she could lose me and yet she never ever stopped me she she was always like just backed me whatever I wanted to do as long as I was happy and I was on a mission, she just backed me, you know, and that's, and that's why I have, you know, so much respect and love for her that, you know, whatever it takes to help her, mm-hmm. you know, I owe her that. She was an amazing mum, and she is an amazing mum, mm-hmm. you know. So when you've had such a, a wonderful upbringing and you've, you've had the benefit of beautiful parents and, you know, you, you, you well, it's your duty as I see it. It's also sure. your privilege to look after them, you know, in, in my case, yeah. for sure. And what a, what a beautiful framing, too, that it's not just a duty, it's also a privilege. 
it is most definitely a privilege. And, you know, I, you know, now even five years in, she's still got a couple of little things that we're still working on, like because she was in a wheelchair for, you know, over 18 months of hardly any movement, um, limited mobility. So very, you know, hard for her to sit on the floor or to get up off the floor or do, you know, and she's 80 now. So, she, you know, she's, <laughs> so we do our yoga and we do all our things every day. And I'm constantly staying up with what's the best, what's the next best thing that I can mm-hmm. get from my mum. So now I'm, you know, exploring things like peptides and, um, uh, you know, hormones and, and, and working with a longevity specialist in the States. And, you know, all of this costs huge amounts of money and um, it, it, massive amounts of, of effort and research and time. But you know what? It, it, it's so worth it because, you know, everything that I learn for, for my mum comes to the benefit of my clients as well. And for me mm-hmm. personally, mm-hmm. And for my family, for the rest of my family and my friends, because, uh, we get to share that information further on down the line. So, you know, it's a double win. And that's what I'm very passionate about now is is being helping people with difficult health journeys um, through my epigenetics and DNA testing programs and and also just helping connect people to the right professionals if it goes outside my scope of, you know, sure. practice um, and passing them through to good people and putting them in touch with the right resources, the right books, the right podcasts, and just opening their mind to this new world of, of you know, all this incredible health science, biohacking, longevity, whatever you want to call this sort of research mm-hmm. area. Uh, it's fascinating. I mean, longevity stuff just absolutely blows my mind. We, we, we you know, if, if we can hold it together, Victor, for another ten years, <laughs> we, you know, we, we're possibly looking at being able to reverse aging by then, and actually, um, what they call the uh, what is it, the escape velocity of aging. You know, so that we're gonna for every year we're alive, we'll we'll be able to actually. Uh, repair our bodies more than a year in other words we we will be able to live for a long long time you know oh, i don't want to say we'll be yeah. immortal because you can still sure. get hit by a truck or something but we, sure. we will be able to slow this down if not if not reverse it um mm-hmm. so my my mission now is to keep myself together <laughs> right as long as humanly <laughs> in, in possible some sort of state yeah. yeah, and so that I wait for the the technology and the the science and and, and all that sort of stuff to catch up, um, and you know it's 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 a very fascinating area of science, and uh, you know there's some big ethical debates on on lots of things, sure. and at the moment it's you know it's the billionaires and so on that can afford uh, everything, but that will change. You know there will be mm-hmm. it will be demonetized and democratized as more people demand. It's just like cell phones. You know twenty years ago they cost a fortune, and now you can and, you know, well, iPhones still cost a fortune, but you know what I mean? The yes. power of those things and everything becomes cheaper over time as more and more people start to get access and demand it. And um, so that's, yeah, that's what I do now is help share all that information and sort of try and stay at the cutting edge of it, what, what's happening in this space. Great. Well, thank you so much for such a wonderful session, Lisa. Wonderful. Wonderful to be here. Thanks, Victor. So how did you like it, Intimates? Discuss your ideas with the community at facebook.com forward slash intimate victor or tweet me at intimate victor or follow my Instagram, you guessed it, at intimate victor. If you can spare the cost of coffee to help the show keep going, head to patreon.com slash victor salmon. We hugely appreciate your help to continue making intimate conversations for you and yours. If not, you can always help other intimacy nerds find the podcast by leaving us a review anywhere online, especially iTunes, or you can just tell a friend. 
The opening music is on hold for you, made of algorithmically generated notes and chords, and played by an AI-rendered saxophonist. The closing music is Gymnopédie, number one, by Eric Satie. Both are provided royalty-free, courtesy of Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. Thanks so much for your time, and may your most important relationships be filled with the intimate, rich interactions you crave. Be well.